Joining me now to discuss is Dave Sirota. David Sirota, you were the first person that popped into my brain when I heard Fourth Amendment. Does that have David Sirota worry? Boston Globe has now started picking up and running with a potentially politically deadly story that was first unearthed by the great David Sirota. God bless this guy, David Sirota. I love that guy. David Sirota's not a journalist, he's a hack. Even the New York Times has called you a populist rabble rouser. Okay. Are you a Che Guevara? Are you a Che Guevara for our age? Uh, and you look forward to a day when college students wear your face on their shirt and don't know what you did? So we're starting this conversation on a week in which uh, we just published a story that had it was co-published with Newsweek. It it looks back on the financial crisis because of new data that just came out uh this week. And the new data basically said this, that Barack Obama, when he was running for office, promised to deliver something called cram down. Uh, and cram down was a policy that had been on the books, by the way, for, for many, many years, which basically said that if you go into bankruptcy court, the bankruptcy judge can, uh, at their discretion, can write down the amount of principal that you owe on your primary residence. The idea being that instead of throwing you out of your home in bankruptcy court, that the court would be empowered to make the creditor, in that, in that case the bank, uh, accept a lower amount that they're going to get paid back uh, in exchange for not throwing the homeowner out of the home. And by the way, the amount that it would be written down would be relatively close to the value of the home in the present market uh, based on uh, potential uh, housing price losses. So essentially, the bank has to share in the loss of the value of the home. Now, yeah, that's no, a, can I just point out, Mr. Yeah. Sroda, this is this had been around for a long time, long time. It's it's not like particularly controversial. Correct. Correct. And 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 it's worth noting that uh, investment properties, uh, mortgages on vacation homes, really all assets other than the primary residence under the current law today can be written down in bankruptcy court for this, uh, using this power called cram down. And it was used uh, to, especially uh, effectively, during the farm crisis uh, for farmers, to make sure farmers weren't thrown off their farms. Anyway. This is, that, you're talking about the 80s here, In the right? 80s, right. Or, you know. All that's a long way of saying that when Obama was running for office, he promised to reinstate this, this power because it was essentially eliminated for primary residences by the Supreme Court in 1993. And Obama promised to reinstate it. A lot of Democrats said they wanted to reinstate it to, to make sure that the financial crisis didn't end up throwing lots of people out of their homes. Well, yeah. he didn't yeah. deliver. Wall Street you know, ran a frantic lobbying campaign. He didn't deliver. And now there's data. I mean, this is, this is the new part. I've kind of buried the lead. But there's new data that said that that power, based on what we know about cram down, using data from when it did exist, it would have likely prevented 600,000 foreclosures. And that's a conservative no, estimate. Isn't that, isn't that awful? It's, it's, it's awful. People, and, people that lost their homes. Yes. And here's the political ramification. You couple that with the data that shows that Trump dramatically increased his margins in 2016 in the particular locales where the housing crisis and the foreclosure crisis were the worst. Yeah. And there's an argument to be made that Trump was basically I, vaulted into office because of the foreclosure crisis. And then you put those two things together and you're like, wow, there was an opportunity for the Democrats to do something that they promised. They refused oh, to do I, it. I, I, Mr. Sirota, if once you start down that road, <laughs> it's kind of hard to stop because if you look at the map where Trump did really well, it's also places that got deindustrialized courtesy of – uh, our uh, uh, PNTR with China, right. specifically that trade agreement. It's also places that uh, where the opioid epidemic was running, you know, full blast. Places that were the hardest hit by this. You're talking about the same places, you know, all, all three of the categories that you just mentioned. Now, the Democrats. This is a funny fact. Not many people know this. They are the party of the left in our system. What could the party? <laughs> Of what could a party of the left do for people who fit the, <laughs> the three criteria that I just mentioned? Losing their homes, deindustrialized, in the grip of a you know uh, 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 sort of a, a prescript prescribed pharmaceutical epidemic. What could a party of left? Well, they nothing. <laughs> 
Well, but right? it, but Nothing. there's a, just but there's throw a, up your hands. Forget it. But there's something deeper that ties into, and this ties together, both this story about Cramdown and the story that you wrote in The Guardian, which I want to talk about in a little bit. But but to preview that, your story in The Guardian about the uh, the the idea or the theory that's now only now starting to be investigated about the uh, potential that that the uh, COVID uh, started uh, from a lab leak. Those two things seem far afield. Like, what do those two things have to do with each other? Well, I would argue that what ties a lot of this together is that the elite uh, legacy media, the elite political class creates, um, manufactures things that we accept as truisms without having those truisms interrogated in a way uh, that might avert, or might give us real answers, and might avert disasters. I'm going to be specific. Yes. Oh, specific that is, you, about you, that. you put that. You put that really well there, and that that's my um, that's my life mission is to try trying to understand the American elite, the sort of the the, the ruling class. Yes. Of this of this country and the way they the way they go about things. And this is the potential. If the if the lab leak hypothesis turns out to be true, this is going to deliver these sledgehammer blows at these elite consensus ideas in all sorts of different ways. All and sorts let, and let's ways. let's trace it, because you just mentioned examples, right? PNTR yeah. with China, free trade as a whole. Yep. Free trade. Absol- oh my God! What you, you, they? What? What was Tom Friedman's line that he loved to use? A no-brainer. Exactly. What, where does that? It comes from the NAFTA debate. Uh, they the the. Uh, this is the Democrats, by the way, got NAFTA passed. Remember Bill Clinton, Rahm Emanuel, they set up a war room and got it passed. They were running TV commercials featuring Lee Iacocca, where he said that NAFTA was a no-brainer. That's right. You know, and this became a kind of um, phrase that they always go back to. I think Tom Friedman is the one that loves to use it. You know, uh, free trade agreement. I mean, they teach you this in, you know, Econ 101. Everybody knows free trade is good. It it never like dawns on these people that just because they call it a free trade agreement, (laughs) it isn't one. That's not really what it is. It's actually a lot more complicated than that. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. I talked to Austin Goolsby, who was in the Obama administration. Funny side story about NAFTA. This is before the Obama campaign. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but he considered he was at University of Chicago. He still is. Yeah. He considered himself a free trader. And I remember this is, you know, 15 years ago. And I, and I said, well, have you ever looked at one of these trade deals? And he's like, well, what, what do you mean? I was like, these trade deals are thousands of pages long. If you yeah. wanted to write a, quote, free trade deal, it would be one page. It would just say no tariffs. What do you think all those other thousands of pages are? They're protectionism, deep regulated protectionism for corporate profits. I'm talking about intellectual property protections, which has now been in the news because of the COVID yes. vaccine. Yeah, we we know about that now. But then they also set up these phony courts. Right. You know, yes. so that we're so that so that businesses that are impacted by or affected, I should say, by these uh trade agreements can sue you. <laughs> yes, that's right. So so that's l- l- let's go through these. Elite consensus number one. Free trade is good. Anybody it's a no brainer. Anybody asking about it uh, it must be a Luddite idiot. The yeah. country gets decimated. Didn't go to college. Didn't go to college. Didn't that's go- always what the, that's yeah. always what the, in our, in our society, that's always the dividing line. Yes. Um, or, or didn't go to a good college, right? Sarah Palin <laughs> went to college, but right. you know. didn't, didn't go to a good college. Right. So th- there, there's always this, this sneering at the, uh, <laughs> where you went to college. Right. So that decimates the economy of the country. Uh, we get, um, along with free trade, quote unquote, free trade, we get, Wall Street deregulation. Whatever Wall Street wants must be good for the economy. We can't have things like cram down uh, because it was cram- a new economy. I don't know if you remember this. Yep. Remember that in the late '90s, I wrote a whole book about this. Everybody agreed. You know, I think we should jump, just skip ahead to the point here, which is that in all of these incidents, and we could go through them in the, Iraq and the Hillary War, Clinton campaign. The, is another one. Going, yeah. Uh, is is groupthink. Yes. All these people agreeing with one another, all of them in their tiny little bubble, and they agree with one another. And this, these are the people who are supposed to be supervising one another. And instead of doing that, they're like, you know, 100% in agreement. They go through a revolving door, you know, the regulators and the regulated uh, constantly. And they're, they're, you know, they wind up letting these terrible things happen. And then when they happen, you remember that what they said after the, after the financial crisis? 
Who could have known, Mr. Sirota? Who could have known? It wasn't my favorite one. It was a perfect storm. Nobody right. could see that coming. And by the way, by the way, th- that's the same answer we got after Iraq WMD. And it's the same it, answer we're going to get after uh, the uh, it, it, after this pandemic. Yeah, it's it, exactly. And and and, and, it's, and it's worth saying. Could have known. It traces all the way back. I would argue it traces all the way back. It's the same phenomenon in the, the so-called best and brightest in the Vietnam yep. War, Vietnam right? I mean, there's War. this through yep. line of kind of. I mean, not to be too stereotypical about it, but the the sort of know-it-all, elite-educated, uh, elite class, uh, uh, yes. liberal aristocrat yeah. know-it-allism. They know what they're talking about and you don't. And that, that book was, when I read it, it was it completely opened my eyes, um, not just about the Vietnam War and where it came from. Long story short, it says the, the author argues that the Vietnam War was basically brought to you by the political science departments of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he establishes this in no uncertain terms. It's it's really damning. Now, he doesn't take it any further than that. He doesn't build a whole you know theory. He doesn't do what you and I are doing right now and try to understand this in different episodes and as a kind of historical phenomenon. But uh, that, well, that's what I did. Listen, liberal. That's the whole idea of it. And here we have this this new example of uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, where does it come from? Well, uh, you know, for the longest time, there was this airtight consensus among the media and among various you know professional groups that it it uh, you know it jumped from uh, another animal, which is admittedly that is what. All you know, uh, uh, virus epidemics. That's that's how it happens. It's where the flu comes from every year. You know, it 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 jumps from an animal species to humans, and uh, but there is you know there's this very good circumstantial. The problem is they haven't been able to find the animal. You know about this, right? right. They haven't been yes. able to figure out where what what animal it jumped from. And there's this other hypothesis out there with all kinds of really. Uh, compelling circumstantial evidence that, in fact, it escaped from a laboratory in Wuhan, China, that was engaged in what's called gain-of-function research on bat coronaviruses. So let's let's stop there before we get into the details. I mean, let's stipulate a few things. One, I haven't seen anybody credible argue because at the very beginning of this, there was this like maybe China was developing like a trying to develop a bioweapon and deliberately release it or n- there, there hasn't been credible. Yeah, that, I don't think anybody that's that would be ridiculous. Right, it, okay. it, think of all the Chinese people that it killed. That right. would be crazy. So 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 to stipulate here, the the theory that's being put out there is that there is this lab in Wuhan, China, one of, I think, three or four such right. labs in the world. Uh, that was doing this research, the research, risky research, controversial research, yes, controversial highly for how controversial. risky it is. Yep. Yep. But, it's, but, yeah. but to it's be very, clear— It's potentially very dangerous, yeah. But to be clear, scientifically well-intentioned in the idea of we're going to mix viruses together to preemptively come up with vaccine therapies for future viruses that don't yet exist. Obviously, right. the risk is you're bringing them into existence in order to do this. So that's, you know, yeah. controversial. But so to- if there's a lab leak, then you've got ter- a terrible problem on your hands. Yes, it's considered legitimate research. And right. there's all sorts of people here in, here in Washington who defend it. Uh, and we do it here in America, too. It's not just it's not something that they invented in, in China. This is something that we do in America. It's something that they do it right near here. I'm I'm speaking to you from Bethesda, Maryland. The uh, you know they do it right near here. I'm like two blocks from the uh, NIH. I don't think they do it in that building, but uh, all around here they're doing that. They do it in Europe as well. So, uh, so here's is, the question. I want to go through. I had an experience with your piece, your Guardian piece, which we're going to link in the write up of, of of this podcast. Your Guardian piece. We can go through the arguments of it, but even before we go through the arguments of it. I put out your your piece on Twitter, and I just said, basically, read it. That's all I said. Like, just read it. It's an interesting argument. This is a, a couple days ago. And I got a bunch of feedback back basically saying um, this – even talking about this entire line of inquiry helps uh, bad faith right-wing po- politicians like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley create a drumbeat for a hot war or at least a cold war with China. In other words, if it ended up being true that it leaked out of a, a, a Wuhan lab or or even just talking about, you know, exploring that possibility 
creates the conditions for bad faith actors on the right to make a politicized argument for their political agenda. So my um, question to so you the, is— So I'm, I'm not interested in a Cold War with China. That's not my— Right, and neither that, am I. That's not and my I would, object here. The object is accountability. And if you if you're, you know— if you are really, uh, you know, if that's what it's all, I mean, Jesus, just think of all the, 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 the things you could, and the groups you could get off the hook here. This is sort of what the professional, uh, class in America specializes in, by the way, is coming up with arguments for how to get, you know, different bad actors off the hook and never hold people responsible. But this has to, we have to get to the bottom of this, not because, um, we want to, uh, punish China. Uh, but uh, you know, I agree that it that that, that there that something like that, if if this were to happen, that that would probably, um, if this were to turn out to be true, something like that would probably the right would definitely uh, use it in that way. Um, there's no question they're already doing that, you know. Um, but uh, where was I going with this? Well, so um, so my question you, is, oh, you have to you have to get to the bottom of it because this is dangerous stuff. Three million people are dead. The uh, global economy was disrupted. I mean, the economy of every country on earth was disrupted for over a year. It's it, this cannot happen again. You know, this is like do you remember when we were kids and there were all those uh, those terrifying movies about what what if something went wrong with the bomb? You know, what if what if um, we launched a nuclear war by mistake? You know, remember Failsafe? Right. I don't know if you. Right. I'm older than you. Right. I remember it. <laughs> yeah, War Games. War Games. You know, there's one a of my whole bunch movies. of these movies. Yeah. Doctor Strangelove, of course, and um, uh, it never happened. We were really scared of that happening, and there's lo there are lots of you know books and articles written about the danger of it happening, including in Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which is where the you know the uh, the the article that sort of broke the uh, uh, broke the dam on this on this subject uh, uh, appeared, but uh, it never happened. Well, th with this, it, it, it if this lab leak hypothesis turns out to be true, this just happened. Uh, you know, this is the sort of nightmare scenario. It has to be, you know, at the end of the day, it, it ha we have to make sure that this doesn't happen again. I also want to add, the the blame doesn't just fall on China. You know, this is, a, like I said, this right, is was a an American-funded lab. Yes. Yes. And this is also a kind of, as far as we know, now this is, they're being very cagey about this right now here in Washington. We can't, this is going to take time to get to the bottom of. Yeah, and there's going to have to be a full-scale inquiry. But, but I just want to say that, that the research that they were doing in China is being done here too. It's being done in lots of places. Lab leaks happen all over the world. They happen with mathematical predictability. So, so you know? all, stipulating all of that, what is your answer to those who say, in in who who say this earnestly, that they are concerned in this specific case, that the inquiry about the, the, this line of inquiry, and if something is found to that that you know that it was a, a a lab leak, that those facts or even that factual inquiry itself is too dangerous and too risky to allow. Because it will uh, create unintended consequences. Well, what do you uh, from think? From bad that's, faith that's, actors that, on the that right. That itself is such a is such an outrageously bad faith argument. You know what? What if the what if the wingers? Why don't you just defeat the wingers? You know, I've been writing about this all my life. It, it's not hard uh, to defeat these guys. Why why do we constantly have to worry about this crap? Well, I'm why, with no, you. I why, agree. Why, look, when we when we when we looked into the financial crisis. You know, which is a subject I know a great deal about. And when they did all that journalism on it and then Obama did nothing, what happened? You got Trump. Yeah. Well, maybe we shouldn't have looked into it. <laughs> you know, maybe we should have pretended nothing was wrong. That's that is insane. It, I, I mean, are, look, I, you know, we, I we agree are with we you. are we are modern, you know, uh, uh, rational thinking humans. And we you know, we, we have a responsibility I mean, maybe we don't. Maybe we should just give up on it. But I'm a journalist, you know. I'll put it I this used way: to be a I historian. The idea is not like let's let's not investigate because because a, a bad person might use our investigation and 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 make political capital out of it. So I'm with you. My view is you cannot fight fascism with censorship. Is basically where I come down. That that there are, are always we, are we ever learning. That? I mean, we are going to pay so heavily for for. Okay, take a step back here. My last article, I think you and I had a conversation about it. My last article for The Guardian was about censorship uh -huh. and, the, you know, the censorship regime in this country right now. And that's, you know, social media, which we were all um, 
celebrating just a few years ago as the most wonderful liberatory invention of all time has turned out to be uh, uh, the most incredible censorship device of all time. It's like it's it's like the Stasi. You know, Mark Zuckerberg has that big red button on his desk and he can shut down any conversation that he wants. And for whatever reason, our team, liberals, people that I vote for, uh, have these hearings in Congress where they try to pressure uh, Zuckerberg and the various other social media monopolists to censor their political enemies, political censorship. Uh, anybody that thinks that that is a good idea has like, I don't know what century they're in. It's like, it's like a medieval thought that you think, you think that you can shut down conversation and the public won't, the political conversation and the public won't find out about it. And the public will, will just let that slide and, and, and everything will be great. And it'll never come back to haunt you. It'll never be done to you. It's insane. Yes. And this is, we're just now seeing the insanity of it. Okay, this conversation that we're having right now with the stipulations that you made earlier, that there that the lab leak hypothesis might be true, that there's good circumstantial evidence for it. We couldn't have that conversation two months ago. Well, you could have it. We could talk on the phone or we could talk on Skype like we're doing now, but you couldn't post it on um, Facebook. No, and I, that, and I want to talk about it. It would have so, been censored, which so, is insane, Mr. Yes. Sirota. So that's the, that's the, the thing the, I want to talk about. The hypothesis that everybody is now taking seriously, including the president of the United States, that this hypothesis was, uh, was, was uh, uh, de facto illegal to think, illegal to consider. This is an incredible blunder. I agree. I, mean, I agree. This with is you. already this is already uh, uh, the, the cat is already out of this bag. You cannot stop this now. I, I agree with you. And here's what I would say to it. I, I would say this. I would say, look, I want to be clear. I believe. That these all of these inquiries need to happen transparently, thoroughly uh, and in a serious way. That, that science, you have to let science explore what science needs to explore to get to the bottom of a mystery like this. Absol so I don't know if, the, if, if it leaked out of a lab. I don't know if it came from an animal. My point is, is that like we shouldn't be afraid. Science cannot be afraid to ask legitimate questions. And if there's a lab where this kind of research is being done and it's one of three labs in the world and that's where the outbreak just happened to be, then you have to allow for that inquiry to happen. And you should be able to allow for that inquiry to happen knowing full well that bad faith actors are going to put out bullshit arguments uh, to try to spin up their political agenda. Of course they are. And There's you nothing you can have, do about that. Right. And you, you need to have the courage. Uh, and, and have this, I mean, come on. Just look, look what we just went through. Uh, Trump stole – Arguments from you and me. I mean, Steve Bannon admitted reading "What's the Matter with Kansas" and 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 like a you know light bulb went on. He admitted this on a TV show. A light bulb went on his head on in his head, and he's like, "Hey, you know, I can we can win these voters. The 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 left has just or the Dems have just left these people behind. They don't care about them. We can win these people. Right. So you know, so there's a reason it all seems so familiar. Trump talking about about trade agreements. It's not like he did anything about it, but he remember the start of the show. All these uh, areas yep. that he won. Yep. There's a reason for that. Okay. Yes, and you can't you can't just not... because someone might a, a, a bad a bad faith actor like him, or like Bannon. Uh, Bannon, by the way, who who really played the anti Wall Street card. Do you remember how yep. he, he he complained bitterly about his family getting getting ruined by uh, yep. some CNBC, <laughs> CNBC yeah. show? I mean, uh, okay, this is no, this is the worst reason to to suspend inquiry and to look away from a subject, you know, to because you you think you can you you, you know you're being politically responsible. Well, I just I mean, want to throw but, out there. But, but wait, I want to wait I, before you before you before you. Like, go on to the next thing, Mr. Sirota. We have been doing this for the last couple of years. The New York Times now understands itself as a political actor. The problem is that they don't understand politics. They think they're a great political actor, and if they just hammer home propaganda, if they just propagandize, that's how you win. But here's but here, it turns I, out I, they don't know anything about politics. But I want to like just rubs people the wrong way. People hate them so much now; they can see right through it. But I want I want to at least acknowledge where this comes from because i think we need to understand it by that i mean 
We lived through a time, you, me, most people listening, we lived through a time in which uh, the Bush administration used the worst kind of bad faith lies about Iraq's WMD to yeah. to preemptively invade another country. At, yeah. One of the most they radical— They suggested they were behind 9-11. Remember, they suggested yes. it in a million ways without yes. ever saying it directly. Yes. And so, I, so my view is, just to at least acknowledge this, which is to say that Lots of people lived through a time in which, let's call that right-wing disinformation. Right-wing disinformation became the accepted norm in a way that we can, most of us can look back on and acknowledge had absolutely horrific and destructive consequences. The WMD case was complete bullshit. Uh, And I think that what that's done, I think you can trace a direct line from that experience to now this this deep fear that that allowing bad faith actors to make bad faith arguments is the first and foremost thing we yeah. must avoid because yeah. the consequences are so grave and isn't we must that, avoid it so well there's so, so much for it, professionalism right this is what's what's funny about that is this is all of course being done in the name of you know we know better than everybody else but the world that i came out of academia journalism uh you know i studied history for many years i, I was going to go out in the world and be a historian that's not how it works you know, you're not making political calculations. Of course not. Or that that kind of political. I mean, you, obviously, you have a a way of looking at the world, and you can't escape that. But uh, ultimately, you are you know you're studying the evidence and coming to a conclusion. That is that is what you do. It's it's inquiry. You know. Yes, and I'm it's, just saying. I think the audience. I think there's lots of of non journalists, um, non scientists, essentially the audience, if you will. Yeah. Who is now remembers the experience of of Iraq being one example, remembers the experience of what can go so horribly wrong when bad faith right-wing actors are allowed to take nuggets of information, nuggets of facts, and spin them up into bad faith arguments, that now the response— The the thing, what you do then, is you don't just revolt, rebel against facts themselves. Of course not, but what I'm saying is I'm just saying— Absolutely not. I'm just saying I think that it's like this visceral reaction to, wait a minute— I remember what happened in the Iraq War. I remember, yeah. you know, these past disasters and how they were fueled by right-wing disinformation. I'm afraid that a scientific, journalistic— how how, I'm sorry, how right-wingers captured uh, these disasters. What, what you're basically saying is after 9-11, we should never have looked into who did it. I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah. I mean, like, I think people just have a visceral reaction to— I don't want to relive that again. And even scientifically and journalistically interrogating the lab leak theory is going to get us into a war. Like, and you know what? My my point on that is I don't agree with that way of looking at the world. Like I, like I, I don't agree with it, but I, but I, I like, I can appreciate the, like where it comes from. I can appreciate the fear of, of, uh, of course, but that's not, this is not, these are not serious arguments. And, And the target of my, of, of my essay is not, China. Of it's, course not. I'm not saying. Of course it's, not. It's it's, profe- it's the the professional community, and it's these very same liberals who have tried to censor. Uh, you know the way but we. I think, but honestly, censor the way, I think the but conversations I, I, that we have. But we're getting to the core of something here, which is that I think that we live in an in an era where disinformation can spread now so rapidly, so quickly, and be be considered accepted fact in such a in such a visceral way that. The, the boomerang effect is to is that there's a fear that that honest, legitimate journalistic and scientific inquiry will only simply feed into that system, that facts can't win, that, yeah. that facts can like only be spun we're, up we're, and weaponized. So everything is propagandized even before it's I mean, it's you, you see the kind of mental world that you're that you're gesturing towards here where everything is propaganda. Yes. Uh, and we all know that it's all propaganda all the time. And your only job is to sort of sift through it and repeat the, the uh, repeat the uh, 
uh, you know, the trite sayings of your side, whatever they are, the line of your side. What a what a terrible world. Agreed. Uh, I, that, I just that, want that's nothing my, to do with it. I mean, th- this is this is when I wake up in the morning to do the work that I do of journalism. More and more, I, I I'll just be honest. Like more and more, I wonder if the basic facts in the media ecosystem even matter beyond just how weaponizable they can be. In other words, I, I, I don't know whether the facts that I report and other people earnestly and honestly report, whether those facts can win the day. That if, if, if basically the media ecosystem is just a place where facts get weaponized and, and turned into weapons of propaganda, then the fear is if I surface a fact that is more easily weaponizable by the right, then by the left, then maybe I shouldn't report it. Now, obviously, I don't behave like that, but I think that's kind of the thinking. I think that's kind of the world we live in. Yeah, I, 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 that is where we're headed, and it's one of the reasons I'm getting out of writing about politics because it's so uh, it's so loathsome uh, that you can't do honest inquiry. It's you know you can't just just you, you know me everything everything I write begins with the facts. Yes. And you proceed from there. And if you can't do that, then I, you know, then I, then I want nothing to do with this world anymore, with this, with this world of, of journalism and, and inquiry, you know, and, and I, look, I'm not in academia anymore. haven't been for a long time. Uh, I understand it's changed quite a bit and maybe, (laughs) you know, maybe that, maybe, uh, you know, maybe the world that I, that I think of where you proceed from observations to uh, hypothesis is, uh, is uh, is all over. I mean, look, um, I, I, the biggest story that I but, wrote. But, I, I'm, but look, I still have to. I still have to play it the way I always have. That's just who I am. I'm. I. Uh, you know, this is this is what I do. No, of, uh, of course. And, I'm and, never going to be a propagandist in that sense. I mean, everybody already. Th- the funny thing is, Mr. Sirota, it wasn't all that long ago that everybody thought I was a propagandist. Do you remember this? <laughs> I was just like uh, this extreme left winger. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, my views were utterly unacceptable in all sorts of. Well, now I'm not anymore. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I remember Tom. I in 2016, I was working at IBT, International Business Times. We published the two of the the two big stories we published in that. We published a lot of stories, but the two biggest ones. One was a story about how Donald Trump uh, is was essentially the creator of the legal doctrine that now allows wall street to rip off investors it was it was a, it was a really fun story a horrible story a story about his his uh, investors in the taj mahal casino and how uh-huh. he cr- essentially created the legal doctrine that's now cited literally by the supreme court in the law uh that allows them to use fine print to base you know, to owners to use fine print to essentially take money from investors and then rip them off that that is the donald trump do- it's really it's, it's in there <laughs> And then we did a big story about how Hillary Clinton was part of approving massive weapons deals for authoritarian governments at the same time that those authoritarian governments were funneling money into the Clinton Foundation. Absolutely 100% factual story. And here's the moral – here's the reason I bring this up. We were vilified by – I would call them normie Democrats, sort of the MSNBC mm-hmm. yeah. crowd – for daring to report that Clinton story. Not because it was wrong, right? It wasn't like, hey, you got the details wrong. Hey, you got this wrong. Like, if somebody says, look, you got the documents wrong, you got this wrong, you got that, fine. Like, that's not not the case. Right. How dare you report that knowing the political environment that you were in? It was 2016. She was running against Trump. How could you bring up those fa- like yeah. it was inappropriate. And I'm sure, and I'm sure when she lost, then you got people. Uh, yes, this happened to me. Uh, got people blaming it on you. And the re- what happened to me was I watched um, a whole bunch of. I didn't go to a Trump rally, but I watched a whole bunch of videos of Trump rallies on on YouTube. You know, just the unedited, yep. raw, you know, footage of of Trump speaking at these things. And I wrote a story. This is again for the guardian. And it's, uh, I think it's one of the most popular things I've ever written. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't even like, um, all I did was I watched these videos and I said, you know, Trump is, everybody thinks he's this and he's that. But if you watch the videos, he spends the lion's share of his time in these speeches talking about trade agreements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a simple point. And then I would quote from him 
uh, and how he would say all these things. And he was clearly ripping off uh, the left, clearly ripping off the argument that like uh, uh, the AFL-CIO has made for decades, you know, clearly ripping off people like you and me. And uh, uh, yes, and then uh, then that asshole proceeded to win. And uh, I'll be damned. People came back at me and blamed, <laughs> you know, rhetorically. Of right. course, and what is the blamed underlying me message, for it? John? Because I had written a story that was like that was pointing out that the guy, you know, it was a good story. If you don't understand what he's doing, how can you beat him? If you just live in your own world, you know, your own world world of mirrors. And uh, and here's the underlying message of it, because I look, obviously, I didn't want Trump to win like. Of course, yeah, not, of course right? not. Of course not. I want Trump to win. Like, like of course <laughs> yeah. not. But my, but the underlying message is, do not surface facts if bad faith right wing actors can weaponize them. And my view at the time, I was. By the way, this is you know five years ago, whatever. It was two thousand. I was actually surprised. I'm not surprised anymore. I was surprised uh, back then because I was like, wait a minute. The, the, a journalist's job is to is to is to surface important facts, and you're not supposed to take into account. And these uh, are public figures, and even you know, you, you know, you you criticize the president whether you agree with him or the presidential candidates whether you agree with him or not. Exactly, like like it doesn't matter who I want to win. Like I'm surfacing. This is a, it's a good story. Yeah. It's an important story. But that but that's not the world we live in now. I and know. so you're well, New York Times. They've said they've said we're not. You know, we're giving up on the idea of objectivity. They've said this in dozens of different ways over the last couple of years, since 2016. But but this is beyond objectivity because your piece actually this is what really haunted me about your piece in The Guardian, which was, it's one thing to say we're giving up objectivity as it relates to facts in what we might call the political arena, the electoral political arena. What you are talking about in your piece about the lab leak hypothesis goes to the to really what's supposed to be the most sacred of all. I mean, politics is, is, is a not a dirty game, but it's a rough and tumble game. Science is supposed to be the most yeah. insulated area. We know sure. it's not, but follow it's the science. Yes. Listen to the scientists. Exactly. Believe science. The idea uh, it's, it's that the, we should the... politically calculate, based on bad faith right wing actors, what science should be able to inquire about and yes. look into. Well, the, that the is that terrifying. That's even, the fact that we think that's even possible. Uh, is 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 uh, is well, a no, sort I mean, of a, I mean, an indicator I mean, an indicator of our madness because science is not uh, journalism. You know, right, science credit, the, not, credit the right to that. Frank and right. Sirota talking on talking on TV. Scientists do not think that way. But credit and, the, uh, credit the right wing for essentially popularizing the idea that you can uh, intimidate science out of scientific inquiry. Let me give you t- t- two examples. I mean. The right has prevented scientific, social scientific inquiry into gun violence. Oh, uh, social de- science. That's de- different. Social science, social science is compromised. Okay. Uh, 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 the I right, mean, the hard, hard sciences. Fine. The, the right okay, has, keep going. has tried to limit research. I mean, less so now. It's ineffective, but has tried to limit research into climate change, yes. environmental yeah, science. That's, that's right. You're uh, right. The right that. has yeah. tried to limit, if I'm remembering my history, I right, tried to tried to downplay and or limit research into uh, stuff like tobacco research and, and on behalf of different you know industries, the chemical industry, the tobacco industry and the like. So my point is, is that is that we're now living in a time where reporting on discussing uh, and 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 potentially the actual research itself, looking into um, politically controversial topics that can be manipulated by right wing actors, for instance, the the Wuhan lab leak theory. That there is a cadre of of people who fear that because they see facts only as potential political weapons, not as having a value unto itself. Like the fact of whether a lab leak happened, regardless of what bad or even good arguments are made from that, it it should matter less than just we need those facts. But that's not what the world we live in now. But I want to add to what you were saying about the right in trying to intimidate scientists. And you're right about the, the climate scientists. They have done that. But at the same time, it's liberals who have tried to uh, idealize 
science in a really stupid way. You know, the, the stuff about believing science, follow the science. What's the, the yard sign that I quote in the essay? The one that says, um, respect science. Respect science, right. And um, uh, uh, this is itself a, you know, a, a, and then there's a whole bunch of, I have even more outrageous examples that I didn't use, like Nancy Pelosi saying, um, science is the, is an answer to our prayers. I mean, it's, it's a deification of science. Um, and, uh, and the, the guy in the New York times saying, let us pray now for science. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, first of all, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what science is. The scientific science is a method. Right. Of getting at the truth. It's not like, uh, you know, this is the established truth and uh, and and there there are no two ways about it. Science is, is a method of inquiry. And um, when we do that, when we when we put science on, uh, when we worship it like that in this worshipful way. And by the way, there are hundreds more examples from the early days of covid of people saying, well, people were scared, you know, and they wanted, uh, you know, they, they they wanted science to come up with an answer. Uh, I was one of those people. And um uh, when we do that, wh what we're actually doing is we're talking about uh, professional authority, respect authority figures. And here's the funny thing. I'm going to change the subject on you slightly here, Mr. Sirota. I mean, everything comes back to the same point, but that the uh, that the liberals and the left, such as it is in the United States, the Democratic Party, uh, idealize authority and expertise, I mean, and identify with authority and expertise in a really alarming way. Uh, and that is, you know, that's the subject of Listen Liberal, how the, how the Democrats became, went from being a party of the, uh, of, of, of uh, working people to being a party of, of the professional elite. And uh, that's what this all threatens to topple, you know. Uh, but I'm here to tell you, being a party of the professional elite is it leads to all kinds of disasters. You started out this show talking about Obama refusing to get tough with the banks. Well, that's what it always leads to, is this sort of uh, 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 failure of nerve among the Democrats. We were talking about groupthink earlier. And when you identify yourself as, as the loyal defender and even worshiper of this group of, of experts and authority figures and stuff like that, you're going to have a real hard time holding those people accountable mm -hmm. when the time comes to do that. And we're at that time now. Here we are again, you know, all over again. We have to hold these people accountable. No, and you also your, – your point about groupthink, you create – a fortress of expertise, quote unquote, that is impenetrable by those who by fact, by the way, by fact, things, by by fact, by by unorthodox creative yep. thinking. In other words, it, look, if you have an idea, if you have a policy, if you have a theory, if you have a set of facts that is true and right and correct and real and has merit then it should be able to withstand yeah, of course. inquiry but, and bullshit. By the way, that is the scientific method. Yes. You're, you're, con you're constantly attacking the uh, the accepted doctrine of the age. It's not like you're it's not like you're just like bowing down in reverence to whatever the accepted doctrine is. No, you're constantly questioning it. Uh, by the way, that's it's not we, just science. We, it's not just science. That's also that's, at at the heart of yes. the theory of the criminal justice system. Granted, it's not a, it's not a justice, but the whole yep. theory of a of a trial is like yep. cross examination, yep. examination. You're you're yep. interrogating so that you can get as close to the truth as possible. And what we're really talking about is it's that it goes back to the to the to the to the title of Al Gore's movie, that inconvenient truth that I feel like we live in an era now where if if truth and facts are too politically inconvenient or politically scary, there's now a reflex to say, get it away, move it away. I don't want to hear it. I can't deal with it. And and that is really the downfall of, I mean, not to be overdramatic about it, but that is the downfall. That's the dark ages. So That's wait, the downfall of two, civilization. Okay, there's now, we now have two really frightening narratives going on here. Be, uh, and I don't know which one is worse. I mean, I, I thought my story was pretty scary. After I wrote it, I was pretty scared. Dude, I sent it to my dad. Okay, my, my dad is a former physician. Hopefully my dad's not going to be annoyed there. And he, I just sent it to him. I, you know, I sent him your stuff. And he, he wrote back. He was like, this is really terrifying and and because the because we should add that the thrust of your piece is that if the Wuhan lab theory ends up being legitimately scrutinized scientifically scrutinized and it is proven to have to be true or at least somewhat true 
after a year of being told you can't even ask any questions about this at all, they're too politically inconvenient, anybody who asks questions is crazy. If that happens, it's a redux of the Iraq war. It's a redux of the of, free it's trade WMD stuff. all over again. It's a, re it's, it's a redux of all that, but in an arguably in the biggest possible, uh, on the biggest possible level, that you can imagine the hundred million. Well, this of is the worst, this, David. This is the worst international. I mean, this is the worst international event since World War II. We, what I used to always say that the great defining event of our generation was the financial crisis. Well, this is worse. This is, this you know, is worse. And, this is, and I think what I hear you this saying turns out to be. So my argument is not that it's. Remember what Trump, Trump used to. Trump, who did try to make uh, sort of racist uh, capital out of this, would call it the China virus. It's a science virus. Yes. It's the, now, now you know, I think what I hear you saying. Virus. I think what I hear you saying, and I'm going to ask you this question, which is, you're not. I mean, one, no matter what, ha no matter where this virus traces to, yes, it is the worst event in my lifetime. Just when you talk about just just straight up numbers of deaths, but. What you're talking about is not just the event itself being the worst. What you're saying is, is that it's the event plus if there was essentially a an elite consensus cover-up, whether deliberate or kind of yes. not uh, like non-conspiratorial, yes. that that the cover-up coupled with the size of the cataclysm itself will so foundationally shake people's last remaining faith in authority and expertise that it will yes it will break apart. that is exactly what i'm saying yes. but that's not the scariest part the scariest part is what if this happens again because once you start reading this this literature you realize that this is this was a disaster waiting to happen right right Right. So there's two. I mean, it's this is frightening on a on a bunch of different levels, and that's why, by the way, I think that the that the reaction is going to be. I mean, you can predict what the reaction is going to be. It's going to be like, well, we don't know. Who could have known? You know, let's forget about it. Let's walk away. Right. Uh, I'm I, I'm next to certain that it, because psychologically, that's 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 how we'll we'll have to deal with it. Uh, it. Either that or either that or you are facing. I mean. If what if this thesis turns out if this if this hypothesis turns out to be true, Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of them need to go out of business tomorrow. They were if they were censoring the true explanation of the worst disaster of our lifetimes, they need to go away. They need to disappear. They need to be put out of business immediately. They but need me, to be let broken me take, up. Let me just play devil's advocate for a second here. What is your response? to stipulating let's let's live in that hypothetical reality and i want to underscore that it's still it's hypothetical we do not right, know, know that yep. the virus came from a lab we're really talking about whether that question can even be scrutinized but let's say hypothetically it probably it probably can't that's where the that's the answer right but but let's I mean, say hypothetically it's a year and a half you know after it first appeared yeah it's almost certainly going to be impossible but to let's get say to the hypothetically bottom. there's more credence to, to the we, there's more evidence etc cetera, etc cetera. What is the because the flip side is the flip side is is that there's so much that that these platforms have created such an easy easy way to transmit any kind of misinformation. By that I mean hear me out here for a sec. There's misinformation that, you know, the the QAnon conspiracy misinformation. Yeah. Yeah. Arguably, you're just talking about it in this hypothetical reality. You would be talking about just a different kind of misinformation. In other words, there's misinformation from like QAnon folks. And then you're talking about essentially elite consensus misinformation, right? Like, yes. Like WMD yes. in Iraq, that was elite consensus misinformation. If if the, if there's evidence, more evidence that comes out that it was in the Wuhan lab leak. And, Wait a and minute. There's, that, a, there's an even better example, which is uh, Russiagate. <laughs> But exactly. You know, that, that everybody agreed on that. So, so my, uh, until, so my they, until they didn't is, agree anymore. <laughs> you know, until until uh, Bob Mueller. Mueller uh, I always pronounce his name Mueller, wrong. Right. Mueller, so my, right. So my in, question you know, is: We're just talking about different kinds of misinformation. There's elite misinformation. There's outsider yes. misinformation. Exactly. And, and, and elite it... misinformation triumphs. Uh, it's uh, that's that's the sociological. You know, that's the way it's always been. But we've now invented this machinery for it to triumph in a in a uh, you know in an almost um, 
Right. So what? So I'm not to put it all on you, but, but like but a, like an East East German kind of way. Right. You so know? so not to put uh, to, to ask you the sixty four million dollar question, but it's like, <laughs> well, what's the answer? Like like wh- like what is like because obviously you and I are not idealizing the past of like three broadcast channels. Like there were you know oh, people no. talk about oh there were three. But there are things that I mean. So the, I don't look. I don't know the answer. Nobody knows the answer. And the past is all we have to go on. And I, and I, and I would point out to you that it wasn't all that long ago that we had hundreds of newspapers in America, each each with a, a bureau in Washington. You know, and and uh, and, the, you know, the press of this country was lively. There is enormous competition. Uh, and uh, uh, and now that's that's gone. Uh, I, I have a, if we were doing this with a video feed, I would at this point turn to a, a painting that I have on my wall and show it to you. It's a, a, a painting of the Wichita Eagle office building being torn down. And a, a guy did a painting of it, an oil painting of this, this image of the, of their building being torn down, which really happened uh, just a little while ago in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, th- this is happening all over America. The, I mean, the Wichita Eagle still exists, but it's a shadow of its former self. The Kansas city star recently had to vacate their, you know, beautiful state of the art offices and sell the building. This is happening everywhere. And uh, uh, once upon a time, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of voices like this with budgets, um, with, you know, with 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 a staff, uh, with lawyers to defend those reporters, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's gone. Uh, we're down to like, what, three, you know, the, the big three. And, and, and I agree that's, with you. That's I a think... world where the where where and the people who write for them now all come from the same background. They went to the same schools. They know each other. They think about the world in exactly the same way. And you have this same problem of the same recurring problem of groupthink and uh, conflicts of interest. These are the probably sort of the the pathologies of professionalism, right? They come up again and again and again when you study these guys. When you study the Obama administration, for example, um, or when you study the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, um, these things come up again and again. They're all in they're all in a bubble together and they can't uh, get outside of it. And it's because, well, I talk too much. No, I mean, I, I look, I, I think the best answer that I've been able to give people when they, you know, this world of misinformation, the best I can come up with is it's not a satisfying answer. It's not, it's not a great answer, but you have to not only, you, you have to rebuild a, essentially what we could call a civic space uh, for facts to travel and that it's not a silver bullet solution that is done overnight. There are not five magical billionaires sitting out there I mean, I think there's a lot of people in media, good people, who just wish for a day when five magical billionaires come out of the out of the woodwork and say, "We're going to fund newspapers in in, in yeah. cities across the country." That I just don't. One, I don't think that's going to happen. Two, I don't think that's the answer. That the real answer. It, 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 it is. It is happening. It's happening all over the place. Who's the billionaire that bought your local paper? Remember? <laughs> right. You're right. You're right. It is happening. Like the, the Alden Hedge Fund. Right. Everybody is, wants to be. <laughs> yeah, that is everybody happening. Everybody wants to. Everybody wants to be Jeff Bezos, and you know. Right. But the real what, answer. No, they all want to be. They all want to. William Randolph Hearst. Yes, what, the what real is. answer is, or, or one part of the answer, is a lot of smaller, more independently funded news outlets who can together contribute more voices, more facts, more uh, 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 more information, valid information to to the conversation. That's going to take a long time. That's yeah. not an overnight phenomenon. It's not a perfect solution, but it's got to be part of the solution. And, and not to toot no, our and, own but, horn, but, but that's what we're doing. Years, in the intervening years, we're now in a situation where our conversations, especially this is especially the case during COVID, our conversations all go through an, this monopolistic intermediary that is not you know, it's it's a monopoly, but it's not owned by the government, and it's uh, and and they're discovering that they have the power to censor speech. They're not bound by the First Amendment. They can do whatever the hell they want, basically, uh, because they've been exempted from lawsuits. Remember this brilliant um, bill they passed back in the Clinton years, and um, and, and these people can uh, can just shut down conversation whenever they feel like it or, or more, more or less whenever they're lobbied to uh to do this yes and i, and I would say I'm, i don't want to like toot our own horn too much but like 
the work that we're doing at the at the Daily Poster, the 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 more and more independent media that's out there, it's still a drop in the bucket in some ways. But to me, or are we talking about the bright side now? Because I have a bright side. Yeah, story. to me, that's part of the solution. What's your part of the? What, what's your bright side? Oh, the bright the bright side is so. Uh, you know, I studied populism when I was in in graduate school back in the eighties. Populism, the real deal, American populism, the populist party in the eighteen nineties was a left wing political movement, farmer labor, right? And uh, to study it was quite difficult. You had to order microfilm. You know, they had a lot of newspapers. You had to order microfilms of those newspapers through interlibrary loan. They they'd show up, uh, you know, after months and months, and then you'd have to sit there. They're not indexed, of course. You have to sit there and read through them every single page for years looking for what you're looking for. And now you're not going to believe this. They're all online. You have to pay a, a small amount of money, like $20 or something, and you have access to all of them. And there's there you there's a text search function. It's not perfect. Wow. It's not great. But I was able to do the research for my populism book. And, I, you know, I did all kinds. I dug in all sorts of stuff that I don't think anybody has ever um, has ever written about uh, because it's now so easy to do. And then I was also able to research the other side of it, which is, you know, all the New York newspapers that hated populism and denounced populism. And when I wasn't able to get those online, I was able to get this, able to buy hard copies of them on eBay, <laughs> which I did. And I've, I've got some, I'm looking at some of them on the wall right now because I framed Amazing. them and put them on the wall. So I, the, the research was much easier, but here's the punchline of all that. My book was not reviewed by a single newspaper in the state of Kansas, which is where the word populism was invented. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not a single newspaper in or, or radio station or any, well, there might've been a radio show that, there that, that interviewed me, but yeah, there's not a single newspaper in Kansas that reviewed it because I don't even know if there are any newspapers in Kansas left that do book reviews. No, that's right. That's you know, right. because that one is one one field dies while so, the other. Wait, so you were going to give me you were going to give me the bright side. That was a bright side. It was I could do amazing research so easily. Ah, I see. Uh, you know, thanks to all of this, all, all of these, uh, the, uh, you know, thanks to the internet, it's just extraordinary the research you can do now. Yes, it it, it really is. It's a cliche, but it, the the internet really is a double edged sword. The fastest way to spread misinformation, but the also the fastest way to actually, at least yeah. for now, to get out the real information. Yes, and consider that a lot of what is coming out now about the uh, about about the, the origins of COVID is coming out via freedom of information requests. Yes. Yes. Uh, which is, uh, again, that is something that is revolutionary just here in the last, I mean, have you ever filed? Of course you have. You've filed these before. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. Uh, one little story I want to tell you, cause you, 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 how you, you sent, you sent my story to your dad. Yes. And, uh, I, uh, I scolded a family member of mine, uh, two months ago for believing <laughs> in the lab leak hypothesis. Really? He's a, he's a Trump voter and, a watches Fox news and all this sort of thing. And he was, he was, you know, he was doing, he was talking about this to me, like, you know, the, the, the Chinese did this, blah, 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 blah. And I, and I, and I scolded him. I was like, no way, you know, that, that's, that, that is a conspiracy theory. It's been proven to be false. You know, I read, uh, you know, what is it? It got like pants, a pants on fire rating from, <laughs> from one of these fact checkings uh, in quotation marks, I guess, one of these fact checking services, you know, and, uh, and I, and I scolded him. But what I often think of when we talk about that is that the last big um, deadly epidemic or the, before this one, the, the dead, well, the one that was, it was much deadlier than this one. It was the flu epidemic of 1918 and 1919. I always like to point this out. The first, they called it the Spanish flu, but it wasn't from Spain. You know where it came from? No idea. Kansas. <laughs> the first recorded case was at Fort Riley, Kansas. And uh, this was during World War One, and uh, they were, you know, had all these soldiers going in, going into and leaving Fort Riley, and it spread among the soldiers like, just like wildfire, you know, and it, it, uh, it, it, uh, the young young people were particularly vulnerable to it, so soldiers, and so in these bases, military bases all around the country, they just started dying, like, uh, you know, it's terrible. But yeah, it started in Kansas, the Kansas virus. Well. I, I, I encourage everybody to read your Guardian article. We're going to link to it in the podcast right up right here. I, I, I think my takeaway from it, to close this out, my takeaway from it is is not that the lab leak definitely happened. It's not even that the lab leak uh, probably happened. It is only that it is worth 
scientifically inquiring about a potential lab leak in the same way it is worth scientifically inquiring about any other uh, avenue of inquiry that is has basic legitimacy. Mo- most of those inquiries, by the way, will come up with nothing. They will be they 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 will not find evidence. Yeah. But the yeah. point is, is that the deeper point is, is that you cannot. We we should not want to live in a society in which we avoid scientific and journalistic inquiry because the inquiry might surface facts or even the inquiry itself might fuel speculation that can be manipulated by bad faith actors. Avoiding facts in order to avoid bad faith actors, that is not a way to, to combat bad faith actors. That is a way to create wild conspiracy theories. That is a way... Yeah, to, to you, destroy no, credibility. You're, you're totally, you're totally right, Mister Sroda. And I would say the way you beat bad faith actors is with good faith information. Yes, and it's it's it it just it just bugs the hell out of me being a liberal in this in this climate that we're in right now, where we are our team basically is counting on things like censorship and stuff like that to stop Trumpism. It's like no, the way you stop Trumpism is you beat it. Yeah. You know, we've beaten the right before. We know how it's done. It's just like there is a, a a blindness to our side, you know, that where they refuse to examine their own mistakes. And, uh, you know, anyhow, don't, it's, don't it's, get it's me started. I just get I get so I get so annoyed. I'm just watching what's happening with Biden right now as he drops the ball and refuses to get, you know, and it, it, refuses to put pressure on his caucus. And, you know, and his agenda is going to die. Uh, by the way, and, I just I, I the last thing I'll say about that, because because it's, it's right on my mind. I saw of all people. Nate Silver, uh, the the pollster guy. Yeah. Nate Silver tweeted out a tweet that was that went something like this paraphrasing but it was basically that he said that he was he was portraying the idea that Biden could pressure people as a sort of ridiculous in fact I have the tweet right here he he wrote he wrote <laughs> the key vote against eliminating the filibuster is in a state that Biden lost by 39 points he's talking about Joe Manchin yeah. You have to be West kind Virginia. of an idiot a state that a state that used to be deep right. deep blue right. you know and Silver says, you have to be kind of an idiot to think his persuasive powers would do much good. And you'll appreciate this as a history buff, because I tweeted this back to Not Nate history Silver. buff, Mr. Sirota. Yeah, I, I said— Buffs. The buffs are—I'm not a buff. <laughs> okay, keep going. I said, Lyndon Johnson got crushed in Louisiana in the 1964 election, and very soon after, he flipped Medicare opponent Russell Long to vote for Medicare. Now, there are differences all over the place. That's fine. It's not an apples-to-apples comparison. But the point is the idea that Joe Biden has no power to move people like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema is preposterous. It's ahistorical. It's ridiculous. And the disturbing thing is is not not just that Biden hasn't tried. It's that so many people accept that it's not even worth it him trying because it would do no good no matter what. Right. And it's so much easier to just persuade Mark Zuckerberg to hit that big red button on his desk and silence the other side. That's that. I mean, seriously, that's that's the reasoning. That's, yes. that's our team's reasoning. That's it's like, well, we, we can't, are. We can't we can't persuade these people. So we're just going to have to force them to shut up. This is we're Oh, my God. It's, it's, Again, it's David Schroeder, we're go, we're heading towards the, the just the darkest of conclusions. But can I just throw down one thing here? The the assumption of among all these people that there's nothing Democrats can do to win the poorest state in America. Unbelievable. I know. It's like, what the hell? What universe am I in? It's, it's, How did this happen? It's unbelievable. should write a book it's about it. I'll call it. Unbelievable. Well, I got it. Like, what's the matter with right, exactly? I, it, I mean, the sequel to you, it's like, what's the matter with Democrats? I mean, it's yeah. like the idea that there's no way to well, pressure yeah. Joe Manchin in. A, yeah, in that a, it can't it can't be done. You know, it, it, just, it, it, it was just a short while ago that, you know, they had one of the one of the most liberal members of the Senate. Uh, although, was, although actually, for one more what? second, what what if you really unpack that? What is it really saying? Do you know what it's really saying, Tom? It's really saying two things in my view. One, we know but can't say, but we know that the Democrats now will never and can never make an economic 
argument to working class people because the party is in part or if not in majority part owned by corporate power and yeah. we know they make the argument they might, they might they might you know they might utter the words they do that from time to time but, they, but they, they, it's, it's not in earnest and everybody can see they don't mean it baked Keep into going. we can't appeal to poor lo- lower income voters in a place like west virginia baked into that is one without saying it because you can't say it explicitly we know our part we know the democratic party just won't make that its donors won't allow them to make a, a strong argument on that and two it's also saying that we know that the culture war now we've surrendered to the fact that the culture war, if you will, dominates politics to such a level that any economic, any economic argument that we would make can't be a dominant argument in the minds of voters. It, oh it can't, I think that that's the two things that are actually back, being everybody. said. It's, yep. Yep. This is, well, this is the, what's the matter with Kansas thesis and, and it just, uh, you know, I know I wrote that what sixteen years sixteen years ago now, but I I just I hate watching it come true. I, I just hate it. I you know it's awful. Uh, 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 because we we knew what the the answer was. I knew what the answer was then. <laughs> you know, everybody knows what the answer is if you think about it. If you you know if you know the history. If, Anyhow, if you're if you're the and Democratic I thought Biden Party, got it. I thought Biden was. I, I thought that there was a a a, 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 a glimmering of of understanding on Biden's part, or at least his economic team, that if, if you the, don't do this, if you don't make a serious bid for people like, you know, West Virginia voters, Trumpism is, is coming back yes, for sure. Absolutely. And I thought they were going to do that, but, but now, I mean, I'm so disheartened by this. Um, it, it, it's th- disheartening. I'm an eternal optimist, even though under got to my... stop this conversation. We're going to talk each other right into the... I know. I'm usually like, oh, look, uh, <laughs> right uh, into oblivion here. I come off as like a pessimist sometimes in my social media persona. But to do this work, you have to kind of be an eternal optimist, like an almost insane optimist, like a, yeah, yeah. you know, you have like, to be able to just shake it off and keep going. Exactly. Because you believe that it can, it, things can be better. But I will tell you, man, I like these last couple of weeks and months, they've definitely shaken the, you know, that eternal optimist spirit in me because like you know at, coming out of the spending bill i was like man, man maybe they get it maybe they actually get it and now right. i'm like i'm like what are you guys doing like dude, there's no way for joe biden to even try to pressure a senator from one of the poorest states in the country there and by, and, and and arguably you can even then flip it to the other point about cinema he won arizona what do you mean there's no way for him to 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 try to inf- to pressure Kirsten Cinema, like, fine, I'll, fine. You want to give me your argument? About, yeah, he lost West Virginia. He can't move Joe, uh, Joe Manchin. Well, what about Arizona? The guy hasn't lifted a finger. And there was an Onion headline that that I, I'm gonna mess it up, but it was basically like, you know, Biden's agenda threatened by the fact that he doesn't care. He doesn't seem to care that much about it. And, and, and I don't know if that's exactly true, but it's like, where's the urgency? It's like the fierce urgency of never. You know, it's like. <laughs> Anyway, that's good. Listen, man, thank you for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Hey, the pleasure's all mine. I'm just, I'm just worried about, I'm worried about people that actually sit there and listen to this whole thing and what they're gonna, they're gonna go out and just like. No, no. I mean, obviously, you you, you gotta keep at it. You know, you you gotta keep at it. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right, we will talk soon. All right, later. See ya.